Welcome to 2038, the podcast where we interrogate the future. In the future, China will be on Mars, and America will be an island. Here's Bruno Macias. The year is 2038, 90 years after the founding of the People's Republic. Following its century of national humiliation, China stood up, became rich, and ultimately grew more and more powerful. The Belt and Road, its political and economic master plan, is now complete. A bridge crossing the Caspian Sea, 200 kilometers from Azerbaijan to Turkmenistan, has made road transport between Europe and China fast and easy, changing old mental maps separating continents. More dramatically, nuclear-powered spacecrafts have been used for the first manned Chinese Martian mission. There is a new global political and economic order, and China is at the center. It will be about power and money, but more surprising, perhaps, this is an order about values, new values of a modern Chinese civilization. I am Bruno Massais. Uh, I am a former politician. I was a Minister of European Affairs in Portugal for two years. Now I'm a writer and living in Beijing. I'm Max Reed. I'm David Lasswell, calling for Paris, terrified of uh, our Chinese future, but unable to see it clearly. <laughs> so I think it might be good to start off by telling our listeners, some of whom may not know what the Belt and Road Initiative is, exactly what it is and what it aims to do, since in your um, your sort of picture of 2038, um, I mean, you sketched the infrastructure achievements very, very clearly, but what is the Belt and Road Initiative and what was it conceived to achieve? The Belt and Road is essentially a plan, a master plan, a big geopolitical and geoeconomic plan to transform the world, to transform the world order, the world political and economic order to give it a new content, give it new values, to give it new principles, give it new rules, but also, of course, to place China at the center. If you want to look for an equivalent, and I've uh, thought about this for a while, I think the idea of the West is the best equivalent to the Belt and Road. It's a metaphor, uh, but it's meant to represent a certain political order where the United States were at the center. The Belt and Road is a direct rival to the West. I mean, I, one thing that's interesting to hear you say that is that here in America, um, even people who are sort of decently uh, news literate think of the Belt and Road basically as an infrastructure uh, initiative, that it's about building highways that connect um, Central Asia and Europe to China. So w what's the relationship between those infrastructural components and the kind of political order that it envisions? And why do you think of it as this much bigger and larger kind of um, set of political goals? Infrastructure is a means. Uh, infrastructure is a way to start designing a certain map, to start connecting points, uh, to starting altering the political geography of continents. Uh, the Chinese don't think about infrastructure as being about connecting two points. They think about it as a complete comprehensive development plan. When they think about a port, they think about the city that is going to be next to the port and the industrial area that is going to be next to the city. Uh, and they think about the uh, division of labor immediately. What is this city and this port going to produce that can connect with another city and another port? So you start moving the pieces on the map, and the infrastructure is just a way of doing that. At the end, you end up with a new economic order. And of course, who has the wealth, who has the money, can also dictate political terms. It is, uh, uh, first of all, about trade. Uh, and, and in particular, to organize these very complex production chains 
where China is going to have the most high-value segments of the production chain and is going to distribute the rest uh, worldwide. Uh, you need infrastructure for this, uh, but the political will, the political capacity, the political influence is really the core of the initiative. So I think it's always good to start with the infrastructure, but uh, we have to be very careful not to stop there. It's only the beginning of the story. But so that's that's a, looking at it from the perspective of the toppling of one superpower and the sort of ascension of another. But um, there's also some ideological component to it, right? It's not just a matter of China seizing the sort of top position. It, they also want to change the way that business and politics is, is done in the world, right? Right. So I think the form, the, the basic structure is not that different from, let us say, the American empire of the last hundred years. The content, the values that are uh, central to, to the initiative and to the plan are very different. Uh, I've thought about this and I've, I've, I've come, out with, come, out of, come up with this expression. Uh, the Belt and Road will be a world of soothsayers, saints, and spooks. And uh, let me take very quickly each by turn. Uh, I think it will be a world turned to the future, uh, with people trying to guess what the future will be like, people trying to transform the future, technologists of all kinds. That's what I see in China right now. It will be a world where moral relations will be more important than they are now, where China will feel that it deserves gratitude from other countries, that other countries have to respect um, the power that China has. It will be very moralized. And finally, it will be very opaque. Um, the ideas of the enlightenment, of transparency, of public reason, public accountability, those won't be central anymore. This will be a world very similar to the security clearance levels of, uh, let us say, the Department of Defense in the United States. Some people will know everything that is happening. Others will know only a bit. Others will know nothing. It will not be talked about openly in the newspapers. That's already true, by the way. If someone researching and writing on the Belt and Road has a hard time getting to the core of the information uh, we need. And it will only get worse from that point of view. I'm interested in where we are uh, sort of right now with the Belt and Road, what what stuff has been built, what the plan over the next 20 years will look like. And if you think there's a sort of particular tipping point that will um, affirm what you're saying, that will make it clear in a way that it hasn't become clear yet, um, that China is leading this global new political world order. Five years in, there still isn't a lot of detail. Uh, there are master plans of different kinds, uh, individualized by country in many instances. And now it's the second stage has to do with concrete uh, projects. A few are already being developed, but not so many. So I know you say that plans are not uh, well known, that there's some master plans, but if, if the kind of the basic bits of it, according to Xi Jinping, have been uh, set out. What what's what can we expect to come? Like what what other projects? What other ideas? What other sort of moves that China might make can we expect to come over the next twenty years? Right. Uh, another way to put it would be: uh, How do we track what's happening, and what would be the important developments that would allow us to say it's working or not working? Uh, I think different kinds of things. Uh, if one country started to show signs of economic growth and development. And it was very clear that this was due to the Belt and Road. One could think of Pakistan, for example, or Kazakhstan. That, that would be a, a turning point where one could say, could say it's working. Uh, if China has a breakthrough moment in some important technology, a Sputnik moment of some kind, then one could say this strategy of moving to the top 
of the value chain, of the global value chain is also working. If there is a major infrastructure project uh, that really captures the imagination of people worldwide, there's now this road, uh, this bridge, of course, in uh, linking Macau and Hong Kong, but something even at a higher level, uh, I think all these things would, would be important milestones. And we, we still don't have one that has been able to capture people's imagination in this way. Can I ask you to speculate a little bit about what a Sputnik moment might be for China? I've been spending a lot of time visiting companies in artificial intelligence, and uh, I see some very interesting things happening here uh, on the side of innovation and research, but also on the side of just getting those ideas very quickly into the street and, and into people's habits. This is already very visible in, in any uh, major Chinese city. Uh, if we have a really significant development in artificial intelligence or in bioengineering, with really significant augmentation for human capacities. Uh, I think in one of these two areas, we are going to see something within the next five or 10 years uh, that is going to make front pages everywhere. And kind of <laughs> scare Americans probably. Yeah, just as it happened with Sputnik. Uh, I think um, in, in that sense, I, I expect history to repeat itself. And, and then we're going to be a, see a spur of activity from the United States. So you don't imagine that the U.S. will sort of um, respond to the ascent of China the way that Britain responded to the ascent of the U.S. and just sort of stand aside? Do you think that there'll be a, a period of intense rivalry? Yeah, it looks more like intense rivalry. That's what I would have guessed, and, and the last year has shown this. I see that kind of accommodation and resignation a lot in Russia. Russia has sort of accepted that China knows how to do economic growth and Russia doesn't. And it's quite remarkable. Two years ago, they were still saying in, in Moscow, we are going to follow China's example. Now they've sort of given up. Uh, China has the economic might. We don't, they say in Moscow. So we see that example in the case of Russia. In the case of the U.S., no, we will not going to see it. Uh, there's much more of a sense that here we have two completely opposite models and only one of them can survive. So you, you think there'll be no time in the future when the United States will find itself functionally a kind of client state of a... Chinese superpower, you think that um, America will always choose to see itself as a rival to China, even if that means um, sort of suffering the punishments of <laughs> trying to be a rival to a, a much more powerful country? Let me tell you what I think would be the, 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 the worst case scenario or the catastrophic scenario for the United States, short of, of a major war, would be for China to extend control over the old world. Europe, Asia, and, and major parts of Africa. And the United States would become an island, uh, an island on the shores of, of this uh, immense supercontinent controlled by China. It would become very peripheral. Perhaps life would still be comfortable, but it would have no voice outside its, uh, its borders, uh, and it would really be relegated to, to the status of, of a marginal island, which, by the way, is kind of how it appears in Chinese maps of the Belt and Road because the map simply ignored the United States. It's on the reverse side of the map. It has disappeared, and the rest of the world is there, meant to be uh, controlled by China. You mentioned you know, one catastrophic outcome of this would be war between the U.S. and China. Uh, I mean, how likely is that? We're talking about the, you know, the U.S. obviously seeing China as a rival superpower, a moment that really spooks the, the Americans. And uh, China, obviously, there's sort of no looking back for it at this point. It, it, it sees the prize here. I mean, how likely is it this actually uh, this escalates into open armed conflict between China and the United States? I think conflict between China and the United States is to some extent inevitable. 
then we have to ask what kind of conflict. Um, and I also happen to think that conflict in the 21st century is going to be very different. Uh, it will be uh, not open, um, mostly non-military, although it could have devastating consequences, but it will be focused on things like infrastructure, trade, the internet, uh, and the war of ideas. So when we say uh, conflict is on the horizon, doesn't necessarily mean war in the traditional 20th century uh, meaning of the term, but it means something like a, a trade war, which we already have. And if you if you could sketch out a little bit for us um, the war of ideas part of that, um, you mentioned earlier that you know some some aspects of what life um, sort of under um, an empowered Chinese regime would look like that you know soothsayers, saints, and Books, right? Um, that sort of seems intuitive to me as a picture of life in China or directly under Chinese rule. But I'm curious how you see the appeal of the Chinese um, worldview being pitched to parts of the world that have been for the last half century or so um, turning towards the sun of the United States and how it might come to be that China would sort of bring them into their orbit? Is it just a matter of the economic opportunities that they offer, or is there some kind of ideological appeal as well? I think there's, a, there's an ideological appeal, which you, you don't find anywhere else. Uh, I don't think that Russia has a particularly uh, uh, plausible or powerful appeal to anyone in the West. But China does. It's starting to have. And in my opinion, it's based on this idea of the future, openness towards the future. I'm here in Beijing, and part of the reason is that I want to see some of these developments that are happening a lot faster here in China than in the West. And lots of people are going to be attracted to this idea that in order to see the future, you have to come to Beijing or Shenzhen. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of truth in this, uh, partly also because we in the West are now so paralyzed. Uh, we have lost this appetite for the future. We have become very afraid of technology. So I can see a time, not that far off, 10 or 20 years in the future, where young people in Europe, particularly in Europe, but also in the United States, will be attracted to this science fiction civilization that, that, that is growing in China. And it's not a coincidence that, in fact, when you think about the appeal of Chinese ideas outside the Chinese borders, one area that has made spectacular progress is science fiction. Young people all over the world are reading Chinese science fiction. Um, there's something to this. Uh, China uh, is increasingly appropriating the future and the yeah, idea I mean, of the future. I, I personally, I feel that appeal myself. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that I'll ever get all the way to living over there, but um, I think about it a lot. The thing that pulls me back is that there are so many features of life in China that seem, um, frankly, terrifying. Um, I mean, all of the surveillance, the growth of the surveillance state there, um, you know, the, the concentration camps in um, Xinjiang um, as the kind of most extreme version of the um, of state terror there. But um, I think a lot of people in the U.S. in particular, a decade or two decades ago, might have thought, well, at some point, China will be the preeminent world power. But for them to get there, they'll have to become much more comfortably westernized, that they'll become um, – a China that looks more like the U.S., just four or five times bigger. But um, it seems over the last five years especially that um, they've taken a much more authoritarian turn. How do you see that playing into the sort of science fiction appeal um, to non-Chinese? 
do you think it'll be a, an impediment or do you think um, it's sort of part of the science fiction bargain? Well, the, the science fiction movies that we like, they are dystopias in some sense, aren't they? Uh, you, you're not going to say, you're not going to say that Blade Runner is a, is a nice, pleasant place to to spend uh, your holidays. Um, so uh, part of it is going to be part of the bargain. Other part, China will have to, if China wants to be successful and to build a world empire, some things that you talked about uh, will have to disappear. Uh, and I think they they will eventually, if they haven't already realized that that it, it is hurting their ability to replace the United States and appeal to people's hearts all over the world. But of course, you know, there we've seen this in our own history. 19th century Europe, early 20th century America were places where you paid a high price for having a new future. And China now is very willing to pay that price. Uh, one thing you see immediately in China is that uh, there's not a lot of con concern about the impact of technology on jobs. Uh, because um, the impact will be felt by the 250 or 300 million migrant workers, which are in some respect a world apart from the middle class, and the middle class simply does not see these people. Uh, w what they see is the positive effect of technology, and don't, they don't even have any understanding of the costs. They won't pay them. Uh, and of course, the migrant workers, they have no political influence and they will be readily sacrificed to this process of capturing the next strategic technology of the future. Um, I'm sort of interested uh, in the question, I mean, we're talking about soft power here. Um, you know, the U.S. has always exercised its soft power best through sort of mass popular media and culture, through Hollywood, through pop music. Um, obviously, China has huge movie and music industries, but they have had mixed success sort of breaking out of the Chinese markets. Um, and I'm wondering if you think that is something that they care about, something that's going to change, something that's going to have to change for them to sort of realize the success they're looking to, to achieve? Yes, uh, I think it will be slow. It is always slow. This is the most difficult part of the, of the process of becoming a superpower. Uh, I, I told you before that there's one interesting phenomenon of science fiction, which is really being read everywhere uh, and, and is sort of the most powerful uh, science fiction in the world right now. Uh, I met a science fiction writer today, earlier today, here in Beijing, and I asked her precisely that. Um, I asked her, Europe uh, created new cultural forms in the 19th century, America created jazz and rock and roll in the 20th century. What is China creating that can appeal to the whole world in the same way that these art forms appeal to the whole world? And the answer was uh, this new variety of talk shows that exist in China that everyone watches where everything can be talked about for hours on end. I've checked them out. They are a bit different from American talk shows. Uh, they are more unpredictable. Anything can come up. They are a mixture of a talk show and a reality show. But still, I wasn't entirely convinced. And of course, there's the obstacle of language. Uh, cinema hasn't been particularly successful. Uh, contemporary art has. Uh, there's a huge contemporary art scene in Beijing that I very much like to to uh, uh, to, to see and, and to witness. Uh, so there's progress in some areas, but this is clearly more difficult than the rest. I mean, speaking of the language barrier, this is this is also something that China is going to have to overcome: is using is to making Mandarin. Um, replace English as the sort of lingua franca of the world. Yes, but there's a lot happening there as well. Um, let me give you a few examples. Um, 
I traveled uh, two years ago in Uzbekistan, and uh, it was already 50-50 between people uh, signing up for Mandarin classes and English classes. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily think that Uzbekistan is not part of a Chinese cultural sphere. Uh, it's become quite normal for uh, Westerners to at least speak a little bit of Mandarin. I've noticed uh, that uh, people in Beijing uh, sometimes now actually expect it, at least a little bit, and that was not the case when I started coming to China 15 years ago. Um, there's a, there's a, a renewed interest in Mandarin, and I would not be surprised. In fact, I, I find it uh, almost inevitable that in some countries, within 10 or 15 years, Mandarin will be more popular than English. One sort of word or, or a few words that haven't come up once in this conversation so far, communism or Marxism. And I'm wondering the extent to which you see Marxist or, or Leninist values or Maoist values for that matter, sort of um, as a component of the ideology of, of the Belt and Road Initiative of the new Chinese superpower. You know, you, you mentioned almost Confucian values. Obviously, Marxism is also a kind of deeply moral politics in some way. Um, and I'm wondering, so I, I'm, I'm just interested in what role communist politics play in this. It plays a big role, and, and you see it everywhere. You see Marxism and communism everywhere in contemporary China. But it has to be, let me put it this way, you, you need to have read Marx, actually, or at least a little bit of it. It's not the Marx uh, of, uh, of uh, the sort of journalistic Marx, the Marx uh, that we associate with the communism in the Soviet Union or in Cuba. Uh, it's not that Marx. It's the Marx that, for example, talked about technology as the driver of history. That's true of, of China today. It's the Marx that always thought in terms of social changes and not individual changes. For Marx, this idea that Steve Jobs is going to change the world is laughable. And for Chinese leaders, it's laughable, but it's not laughable for us. We actually believe that the individual can change uh, history and not for Marx. Um, it's also uh, the idea that, uh, that history has different stages. So there are important, uh, it's, it's the idea that uh, the economy is more fundamental than uh, ideas and that ideas will eventually follow economic power. There's lots of Marxist ideas. Let me give you a final example. The idea that there's an international system of power which dictates your fate economically as a nation and that you have to change the global system in order to rise to the top, uh, we don't quite believe in this. It seems to us that everyone can do their own thing and be successful. But of course, for Marx and for contemporary Chinese leaders, you need a sort of a worldwide revolution to change your economic fate. And that's what the Belt and Road is about, is about bringing about a worldwide revolution. So to answer your question directly, I actually see Marxism everywhere in, in contemporary China, but it's just not, not the, the, the communism of documentaries about life in Cuba or in the Soviet Union or in North Korea. Well, I, one thing that I wanted to get to that uh, we don't have to go into too, too much depth in, but I was, I was in, your, in your conversation, the conversations we've been having running up to the show, um, I was interested in the sort of picture of life, uh, the, the sort of hints of pictures of life as an American in a Chinese-dominated world or as a, or as a European, say. Um, and one of the things you mentioned was that sort of games we play based on Euro-American archetypes like Cowboys and Indians are going to be replaced by Chinese cultural archetypes. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little, like, so, you know, in one vision of this future, you have kids who aren't playing Cowboys and Indians, they're playing um, Journey to the West or they're playing sort of Chinese legends and stuff. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. 
Yes, I think that's a, as a striking way to put it. Uh, let me let me say, however, that I I don't think the penetration of this Chinese world order will be entirely universal. By the way, the West was never really able to penetrate China. Um, it's not like Chinese kids were playing Indian and cowboys. And one of the striking things about traveling in China is precisely seeing that these archetypes, which are present everywhere in Russia, in Brazil, in South Africa, are really not present in China. So it may be the case that these Chinese archetypes will not be able to penetrate the Midwest or Southern Europe um, uh, or provincial towns in Germany. But that doesn't quite matter because if they are universal, if most of mankind, which by that time will be as wealthy as uh, as, as many countries in the West, uh, if most of mankind is attracted by these archetypes, those that are not will feel like the Chinese felt 200 years ago, increasingly on the margins of history, not understanding what is happening or... Um, best case scenario, just watching what is happening but not participating. I think that would be um, almost as bad or one could argue even worse than to be absorbed by the Chinese archetypes. Uh, Bruno, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been a sobering discussion um, and, uh, and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was great to talk. Thank you so much. It was fun. All right, David, let's talk about the likelihood of Bruno's prediction. How likely do you think that this is going to happen? You know, I sort of, um, I have two minds about it. I think my American pride and Western, like innate Westernness, just biases me against it a little bit. I mean, obviously, China is um, a growing economic behemoth. They have these grand geopolitical aspirations. And you know, certainly or at least over the last few years and probably you could say over the last couple of decades, the U.S. has been in a bit of retreat. But I still, when I think forward, I still can't quite get my head around, like, while I'm still middle-aged, um, that the world will be really operating in a Chinese image. And I, I'm sure that's my own prejudice rather than, like, really logical thinking about, like, the grand historical narratives at play. But I have to, I just think, like, They've shot themselves in the foot before. Um, like yeah. I, uh, I sort of, I sort of can't imagine a seamless ascent, um, at least happening so quickly. Even though I see all the writing on the wall and see it as a, t a totally logical conclusion of the way things are heading now. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, it's the kind of thing where it seems. Um, the next, say, five years are going to be, to me at least, it seem feel like they're going to be extremely important to figuring out exactly how the new, the sort of the world order is going to shake out over the next 20 years, you know, as is this, is the right wing pop? Because to me, part of this is a question not just about does China have its shit together to do it? Because it certainly seems to have its shit together more than it's had in the past. But it's also, does the West have its shit together to, um, to sort of, to, to slow this rise, to fend it off in some way. And I think, you know, the the elections of the next decade are going to be very important to determining whether or not that is, in fact, the case. Um, I thought this was, it seems credible to me. I mean, I think that uh, in many ways this is like Bruno's take is exactly what the Chinese government would like to hear or, or, you know, not what they would like to hear in the sense that 
they that they're so eager to be listening to our podcast, though. I yeah. hope they are. Um, I, you know, I think this is like this is the Chinese plan, and I think that it's it's a pretty good one. That that um, especially you know the the way they think about uh, relating infrastructural projects to um, global power is like it's not a new insight, but they seem to be doing it better than anybody else is right now. Um, and so, to the extent that that sort of altogether forms a coherent vision of how the future might play out, I think it 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 strikes me as extremely credible. Yeah, what I mean, it, it seems like um, the thing that really sticks with me is you know his his repeated emphasis, which I'm I'm sure is um, earned through experience of the Chinese faith in the future. And you know, I just think of like. Um, you know, Peter Thiel's line about um, flying cars and, you know, Robert Gordon and, like, the end of growth. And I do think that, like, as much as we are enamored of our little, like, devices in the West, we actually don't really think that the world can change all that much. Um, we think it can, like, get a little bit better and maybe, like, people who are, like, a little bit worse off will get a little bit better off. But the kinds of dramatic world-changing transformations that we used to not just imagine but then, like, put into practice, put it, you know, make real, um, just doesn't really seem to be a part of our culture anymore. And, um, it's sort of a vivid contrast to, um, to see in China, the opposite happening where nobody has much, um, nostalgia for the past at all. Um, they're just like excited to see what the future can do for them. Um, you know, but that, I think that's, um, it's, in, you know, we talked a little bit with him, but it is interesting to think about in terms of, um, in terms of climate in particular, um, like the the superpower astride the world responsible for every inch of our infrastructure, um, they're also going to be like to blame if that infrastructure fails or if it, um, you know, contributes to um, widespread suffering through, you know, like I think um, they, they're now pouring more concrete in China than the U.S. poured in the whole 20th century every three years. And concrete is like a huge carbon emitter and you know there's so many things about what they're doing that are making the planet worse off as they're trying to sort of seize ownership of it and while there are inevitably going to be economic opportunities there i I also wonder about some kind of like global backlash to a um what is seen as a um self-interested empire and the west has always been you know putting itself forward as a in a way that was um clear to outsiders as self-deluded, but there was like a, the, the delusion was that um, the West was not just acting out of self-interest, but out of some broader principles. Right. And, you know, to, to like expand on his point about the sort of moral politics of China too, if that, if that self-interested empire and the building of infrastructure is connected in a very explicit rhetorical way to gratitude and, you know, sort of um, debt, some like sort of moral debt, that that obviously is not going to you know that that is not a great way to kind of form to to wield soft power let's say um but you know i mean even to your point about climate change there's also a chance that it becomes a sort of pyrrhic victory that you you become the global superpower on a globe that that nobody wants to live on anymore um or that nobody well, can live there's on also the, the the chance i guess that they could really like solve it yeah I mean, you know, they, you know that, so it's like they could be they could be those they could be like gods to the rest of the world um which would be like that would be kind of an amazing like history to live through yeah 
Um, well, speaking of all this, let's talk about how terrified we are. How scared are we of the Chinese world order? Well, I, you know, his, his like most extreme scenario still has like the U.S. basically functioning as like Northern Europe now, like sort of like outside of the tides of history, but like still doing relatively well and um, materially comfortable. So in a practical sense, I'm not so sure like how scary it would be for the world to be run by the Chinese. I think it would be really scary for us. I think it would be really scary for a lot of people in China um, for that state to have um, even to be even more empowered and have even more grandiose visions of its role in the world. Um, and I expect that it would also be bad for, you know, citizens of these sorts of like client states and um who have some relationship to Chinese power and can't even count on their own, um, you know, the sort of the, the, the integrity of citizenship to protect them. Um, so, you know, I think that I think that there is a possibility that the China becomes both the world's most powerful country and like the world's worst place to live, um, which is kind of funny. Like we tend to think in the West, at least we tend to think that liberalization goes along with um, prosperity. And this is like, um, you know, another test case of that. Yeah. I mean, one thing we didn't really get into in this talk that I wish we had is that, you know, the U.S. has never not been a a nation or a state that didn't have, uh, didn't sort of um, construct itself along racial lines, but it still has this kind of um, fantasy of being a non-racial it's a you know it's a it's a constitutional state that's about membership and and citizenship and belief it's not it's not ethnic and i know that the the china and china has a more complicated relation to that and the relationship between the various ethnic minorities in china and the 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 han majority is fraught in ways that are different and maybe um I don't know, are, are more difficult to sort of like see forward? I mean, I'm sort of, I'm wading out of my depth here or uh, into the deep end. Well, it's interesting to think in the, in the American context, we have this, like this, this just absolutely horrific racial past, but you can't, if you look at it squarely, you can't see it as anything but like a moral abomination. Right. Whereas um, in, in the, you know, take slavery out of the equation and it's just like a kind of, status hierarchy that operates alongside class and nationality and a thousand other status hierarchies that are competing um, in the modern world. And, you know, it becomes a lot harder to be offended by those, by those like slights and um, like relative degradations, even if there's like a concentration camp with 2 million Uyghurs in it, which it seems like there is, which is really horrible. Um, You don't, you can't really imagine like, a national reckoning with that issue. And even if America's reckoning has been, you know, partial at best and slow and reluctant, like, you know, they still teach about the slave trade in elementary school. Right. Um, and it, like, you kind of can't imagine Chinese kids <laughs> learning about the Uyghur concentration camps. Like no. Years from now. no. And the, and plus the idea, you know, going back as far as the Monroe doctrine, the idea has always been that the U S the empire, the, you know, the, this is, there's actually something sort of, you could see why, why the, the, the insistence on, um, a particular kind of international politics sort of works for the U S because you can sort of pretend that, that the U S empire is actually about liberating people. And you sort of come up with this great, beautiful story about how, you know, the U S is just spreading freedom. It is the the birthplace of freedom and democracy, and it's now spreading it everywhere else. And 
an imperial power that is based that is like sort of strictly that that you know that has a, a an enormous core of a, of a of a huge ethnic population that is um, envisioning itself as uh, you know. Um, uh, generously bestowing upon other nations, you know, these infrastructure projects and so on, is one that is going to have its own like very real problems with, you know, the same problems that every colonial and imperial power has ever sort of faced. Um, and you know, so like I, I, I suppose we're still talking about terror here. So I, I agree with you, and I think that like the the terror really depends here on where you are and what your what your nation or what your community is offering to China and how it's offering it. Um, you know, in all honesty, like I think it's probably in, in I think there's 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 many different ways this plays out, but if you can have a kind of stable bipolar or multipolar global community, it might actually be better for the world that the US has in in very obvious and now extremely well documented ways not been a universally positive force um in in global affairs and to put it to put it mildly to put it yeah. mildly and one in which you know no matter how how bad we we know china has act china's state has acted that one in which there are multiple competing or or cooperating um global superpowers is one in which uh you know maybe poorer people are less bad off that third world countries or developing countries are less bad off you know i think that there's like there, if social change is going to accompany the Belt and Road Initiative and if it involves a transfer of wealth from, say, rentier class capitalists to the global poor, that seems like basically an unequivocally good thing. Um, but, you know, if it's oh, a comp- that's like, I Don't you feel like that's sort of like propaganda that like really they're they're like imposing, you know, it's like they're imposing um, debt structure on countries yeah. that are like, you know, and the, I don't know. I mean, I. I'm, I'm sure that, like, those highways are going to be good, but I also feel like those people are going to be paying for them. Like, in yeah, the no, you're right. That's It's true. I mean, like, I, I, I this is this is also sort of I well, let me put it the, the one the one last thing that I should that I that I was noting in this conversation and that I kept thinking about is that, you know, the 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 technological change is, is coming, like whether or not we kind of like it, it seems at this point more or less inevitable that 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 the way uh, that the the devices we use, the internet that we're on, is going to um, shape the 21st century uh, national and global politics, and the country that is able and willing to sort of use it uh, in a concerted and coherent way is one that's um, going to be really well positioned to dominate. And so that speaks to the sort of likelihood of it, like the fact that China embraces the future in this way. I think is something that um, that the U.S. is going to have a lot of trouble figuring out how to compete with. But what really scares me, the bit that gets to the terrifying bit, is that I'm not sure that the technology that is already kind of d- developed and being developed, and the technology that is going to shape and dominate the world over the next hundred years, two hundred years, is technology that ha- that um, that that a state that masters that technology is a is a surveillance state. It's a state that is uh, that is focused on using that tech to sort of um, like dominate its people. Um, and so, you know that that that's a to me that's a way all this stuff is tied in together. And that I the one thing that does scare me is even if the U.S. becomes sort of peripheral to global order, and even if you know the that we're still pretty well off and we still make pretty good movies, and like you know there are celebrities that we own 
that. I mean, this is what I keep. <laughs> well, I was just I was just in Norway, and I kept looking at these Norwegian um, tabloids, and I was like, oh, there are there are Norwegian celebrities. You know, there are like people that they that they care. That's the most important thing that we retain our some some level of uh, you know at home celebrity. But the 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 point is that you know we might sort of lose or or have uh, we might still have all those things. But if our government starts looking at China and saying like this kind of mass surveillance, uh, mass facial recognition technology, um, you know, is, is is what's necessary to have an edge that 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 has considerably bad knock on effects to us. Now, look, it doesn't even have to be China. They could look at, you know, London, they could look at England and say, oh, actually having surveillance cameras on every street corner is a good thing. And I know that there are plenty of people in the US who don't mind that. But I'm a little wary of um, the idea that China could uh, edge the U.S. on technology in that way, and but edge it in a way that I am deeply uncomfortable with. Yeah, I mean, on some level, that it seems almost inevitable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this was a really fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you to Bruno Macias for joining us from Beijing. If you are interested in reading more from Bruno Macias, uh, his book, Dawn of Eurasia, On the Trail of the New World Order, is out already. And coming soon is Belt and Road, The Sinews of Chinese Power. To hear more predictions from us, subscribe to 2038 and check us out at nymag.com forward slash 2038. This podcast was produced by Fanny Co. in association with New York Magazine. Our editor is David Haskell and our editor-in-chief is Adam Moss. I'm Max Reed. That's David Wallace-Wells. See you in the future.